insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Hey, welcome to Triple I Insight into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm fabulous, but you can call me Thomas. This week we covered Chapter 1 of Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning Classroom Practices for Student Success by Cherokee Holly. Throughout this chapter, we were asked to pause to ponder. These are the questions that we will be delving into during this episode. As mentioned last week, each episode will also have an assignment prompt provided to us by the professor. This week's is reflect on your answers to the anticipation guide on page 17 of the Holly text. At the end, we will complete this guided questions again, which, if any of your answers changed after reading the chapter. To start off this episode, we're going to read the answers from our anticipation guide that we completed before reading the chapter. At the end, we will provide our answers to the same questions as done in the reflection guide and talk about any of our answers that changed after having completed the reading and having our eyes open to the meaning behind some of Cherokee's words. What do you think of when you encounter the term culturally responsive teaching? Do you agree or disagree with the following statements about the concept? Here's the first one. Culturally responsive teaching is meant to help with race relations among educators and students. So I disliked the wording of this, but for my initial one, I have agree and then in parentheses, kind of. Like, I don't think that's the whole purpose. And I also said I agree, but I also didn't like the word race relations. And I also said agree-ish, but also not partly, question mark. The second question was, or statement, was all students can achieve highly when given the opportunity to learn. And my knee-jerk reflex on this one was agree, given that opportunity also involves all the different things we're learning about as far as equity and having an equitable classroom. Also relates to access and make sure that's equitable. The third statement was racial identity and cultural identity are synonymous. And this one was just a disagree from me. I said, um, maybe. And I put a hard disagree. The next one was non-standard English is a simplified version of standard English. And I said, maybe, but also disagree. Like, kind of, but no, was my mindset. I put a question mark because I didn't understand the word non-standard English. And then I thought about it and I was thinking like Southern and like different dialects. So I put no. Because it's not. Yeah, I put disagree. Final one. Socioeconomic status is the most critical factor in student success. And I said disagree on that one. I said agree. And I said disagree. I just, I guess we're going to discuss it now. <laughs> so yes. I might as well just bring it up. My, my feeling was the word most or the words most critical made me super uncomfortable. <laughs> Right. And in any of these statements, of course, there's going to be a situational one that makes you argue it, because my thought was we do know that there are people who fail academically, even with like all the socioeconomic benefits of being like upper class or whatnot. But that being said, I also know that socioeconomic status is going to heavily affect students in a typical classroom. And I did this without reading it like 
we did we did this test before we even read the chapter. So this is all our pre-knowledge or you based on our pre-knowledge with actually understanding the definitions of everything. But I also was thinking like for me, I said just yes because I know that when I was younger, we were really um we had we were really poor. So like if we would have had that socioeconomic status, it would have been very crucial for us to fully succeed. And all my fan not only just me, but my family members at the same time. Yeah, I um I mean I was also not super wealthy or anything, but I felt like I did get a good education. It just happened to be that maybe there were good teachers in the school that I was in. Then also always or most in questions like these, I immediately just distrust the question. And it, and it makes me feel like I'm taking the SATs or the ACTs or Westbys or the NES tests just because that, like, what is the correct answer? Because there's multiple correct answers, but what's the best answer? And then it just makes me not want to answer it. And these, all these questions were very broad and there really wasn't a lot of explanation with them. And so like, they sounded like they could be, but then like, of course we'll discuss this later on after um, we do the, do this uh, guide again, but knowing what all they, all, all they actually entail does really put perspective around it. But like, I was like, I, in each one of these, in each one of these sentences, I have words underlined questioning the definition and the meaning of each one of them just because I just didn't understand what they were meaning. What is the right answer that they're trying to get at? So that's, I was relating that to what you were saying, Jamie. The first question about the race relations, again, wording made me feel uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) The part that meant to help with race relations. I just feel like race relations could be its own subject and delved into years and it's just this really huge subject. Um, and I believe that it's related to culturally responsive teaching because race and culture are really closely intertwined. But I just don't think that it's the front, the the forefront of culturally responsive teaching. Right. The thing about me that got that was it framed this relationship as being the most important when I thought anything um, evolving, like revolving any type of pedagogy the end goal should be should be like academic success of the students or student learning so the fact that that wasn't there was kind of what made it weird to me was the focus on relations which is still important but In the beginning of the text we define and unpack the meaning of culturally responsive pedagogy CRP in the text Geneva Gay defines culturally responsive pedagogy as the use of cultural knowledge, prior experiences, frames of reference, and performance styles of ethically diverse students to make learning and encounters more relevant to and effective for them. Author Shiraki Holly defines cultural and linguistic responsiveness, CLR, as the validation and affirmation of home, meaning indigenous, culture, and home language for the purposes of building and bridging the students to success in the culture of academia and mainstream society. Django Paris and H. Sami Alim then explain culturally sustaining pedagogy, CSP, as having as its explicit goal of supporting multilingualism and multiculturalism in practice and perspective for students and teachers. They go on to say that CSP seeks to perpetuate and foster to sustain literate and cultural pluralism as a part of basic democratic project of schooling and as a needed response for demographic and social change. CSP then links a focus of sustaining pluralism through education to challenges of social justice and change in ways that previous iterations of asset pedagogies did not. Now for the pondering thought. 
What is your term for cultural relevancy? Why did you choose that term? In which situations have you used the term? In those situations, was there consistency in the use of terms and their meanings? Do you think that it is necessary for individuals to use the same terms and definitions? I chose a culturally responsive pedagogy and I chose culturally sustaining pedagogy. And I chose those terms because I think that we are responsible for our, the children to be um, represented in the classroom, in their full culture. And then oftentimes I see teachers or individuals stop at a certain level within their responsiveness. And um, it's more of that surface level that we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, it's also, that's the reason I chose sustaining as well, because we wanted to sustain and perpetuate to go deeper into a culture versus just that surface. And then I don't actually never use these terms exactly as it's been I've used the, the theory and said it in other terms and other words, but um, I've never actually said it in these words. I didn't know these words until I read this book. I think if I'm thinking about it, as long as we all have the same definition, how, whatever we call it, it still won't, it doesn't matter. Um, I guess for transparency reasons, like it would be nice if it was all the same term, um, just so that we all know what that encompasses, what it all, like the exact definition. But as long as if we all come to the same definition, I don't personally care if it's necessary that we all have the same terms we use. Right. So Thomas, I took my answer to this a completely different way than you did. I was not looking at the different pedagogies and I kind of tried to come up almost with a situation that would define cultural, like cultural relevancy and what that would look like in the classroom. So mine says uh, cultivating a classroom climate where students feel confident in all spheres of their identity uh, as it is not only preserved, but also worked into elements of the curriculum. They feel seen, heard, and accepted with an academic experience that backs that. Um, So pretty much the idea of it's not a teacher just saying we accept everybody and then just teaching to a way that neurotypical white males can understand. And ideally, this confidence and embrace sense of self and differences will carry on within our students out into the mainstream of society. Because that was my thought, too, is it's cultural relevancy for us. It's starting in the classroom. But ideally, you know, it's just becomes part of our community and whole. And like you, I hadn't heard this term cultural relevancy before reading the book. Um, I've probably explained concepts of it to people before without knowing what it was. But I hadn't actually used the actual words cultural relevancy. Yeah. And the only reason I think it would be important for individuals to use the same terms and definitions like we discussed in sometimes I feel like misunderstandings in what a word means can make people argue about something that they actually agree on. I would definitely agree with that statement. Um, just so, like you made me think about our uh, English language learner class our, uh, with um, Gisela. Gisela. Sorry. Oh, goodness. I didn't want to butcher it so bad. But there are so many different definitions for early or um, English as a second language um, and to define them. And there was a whole list of them. This kind of made me feel like that is that there's a whole list of them and they're all really in in um, essence, they're all the same, but they're all defined differently. And so that just made me think of that part. Something I wanted to bring up really quickly, because I think we actually, I heard you say this before, and I think I followed suit, but then I think we are using that wrong. Well, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure we're using it wrong. Is it, it, it should be systemic racism versus systematic. Oh yeah. It is, it's just, because yeah. like, Systematic is like you're following along with something, whereas systemic is me- means it's part of this part of the education system versus 
Yeah. So, which again, we were just saying, using different words and understanding different words can make people be disagree on this something that they're agreeing on. So just that tiny change in that word itself. And that can spark an issue. And I feel like I understood this completely differently than you two understood this question because it says, what is your term for cultural relevancy? And I thought of a specific word, like a specific term. So I chose the term cognizance. Oh, I see how I, I see what you the, the thought process you go ahead, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so I, t- I mean, you know, who, who knows what this question was asking now that we've said it three different ways. But yeah, I chose the term cognizance because I think that ignorance is a root cause of discrimination. Oh, okay. So without being cognizant of other cultures, there's this, this misunderstanding and, and a lot of the time there's a fear And even if it's not like ethnically based, but just due to like something that's internal, like internal turmoil or something or other, then that can be projected onto those of another culture. Then it takes the form of stereotypes and then et cetera, et cetera. And it's just this snowball of an issue. But then by educating oneself, because we're we're delving into a person or a culture in order to come out on the side of acceptance. So it's sort of like cognizance into acceptance. And with me, I, I not necessarily in the classroom, but in all of life, I use the word cognizant. Like once I really understood what that meant, um, I started using it more often to be cognizant of the situation at hand. So if you don't understand it, you can't be, you can't, you I don't can't know. be culturally responsive. Like you can't, Yeah, you have to understand the meaning and the, and the, and the core of what it is. And then you can actually project it further. Right. And then just seeing those things from those multiple viewpoints, the opposing sides, all that is really important to do before you make a a decision or some sort of like snap judgment. So I just, I just felt like cognizant just requires that, that attainment of knowledge just in order to help empower our students and ourselves. So I use it a lot for a lot of different situations, (laughs) the consistency and the use of the terms and their meanings. I mean, I feel like, in those different situations, it can mean different things, but it always means like be cognizant of what's happening, be aware of what's happening, be have knowledge of what's happening. You know, it's always very similar meanings. Is it necessary for someone to use cognizance all the time? No, you can explain it in a different way as long as you're explaining the feeling of said term. Yeah, I, I love I love how you went with that. And I love the thought process. Because um, at first I was like, okay, term. How am I going to think about this? But I didn't think about it that way. And I really love that you thought about it as, as you're using, how, what, how does it define for you and how are you going to use that term? And if like, and I love that term is wonderful. I didn't even think about it that way. It's really, it's awesome. It's amazing. Right? To put such a complex thing into one word in such a, like, I have a hard time with it. <laughs> yeah. Because that was my issue. That's why I ended up going with kind of more of a situational like environment answer was I couldn't think of a way to explain it in one word or in one term. And that's why I chose the one I chose is because I, I look back in the chapters like, okay, I'm not understanding it, but I'm going to just choose one. Cause I remember they said all of these. And then I saw I, all of these pedagogies and then I saw the responsiveness or uh, cultural relevancy above it. And I was like, okay, maybe this is it. I'm going to choose from this list. And it really resonated with me with the ones I chose, which is basically, we all basically say the same thing to uh, seek to understand. <laughs> 
to uh, be culturally relevant. And basically we made the same, the same definition, the core definition, very similar. Right, and, and the fact that we all thought of it a different way is very telling to, we can teach the same thing to all of our students, but they're not gonna understand it the same way at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And as, but, and as teachers, we're going to have to be preemptive within like, okay, where are they going to take this? What, oh, how many branches can we go from this? Right. But are they going to get the, the core of the lesson? Yes. Oh, thoughtful. I love it. After talking about the big kahuna of cultural responsive pedagogy, CRP, we wonder, what does that mean? One pedagogy stood above the rest, cultural and linguistic responsiveness. Dr. Holly explained why they adapted it into their class, then defined culturally responsive teaching as a pedagogy that empowers students intellectually, socially, emotionally, and politically by using cultural and historical references to convey knowledge, impart skills, and change attitudes. Dr. Holly goes on to explain that you need to be able to vab with your students and colleagues. Meaning that as a teacher, you need to validate, affirm, build the connection and the bond with the students and your colleagues, which in turn leads to success in becoming a culturally responsive teacher. As we ponder the thoughts for this section, what could prevent you from vabbing, which is validating, affirming, building and bonding with a student or a colleague? So right off the gate, vabbing in all of its academic glory just makes me think of vibing. Um, And it kind of translates the same too, like what could stop you from connecting with your students ultimately. Um, And the first one that came to mind for me was ignorance or lack of experience. Like if a teacher either knew nothing about a kid's background or nothing about the culture that they came from, that could just and stop them from being able to connect at the same level because they just don't know any better, which is why I think personally I need to do a lot more cultural exploration before I start teaching. But something, I, I was thinking about it situationally like one time that could prevent me from vabbing would be, and we aren't able to think about others in that moment. It's hard to pull yourself out of your own head and focus on someone else. So right. things like if there's illness or a death in the family, and obviously we hope that this isn't something that you take to work. Um, but, you know, a lot of places are like, leave your baggage at the door, but we're human and we're yeah. imperfect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard sometimes. And, and then the other thing is you hope that, you'd be able to ask for time off. But again, in the time of COVID, we're in a teacher shortage and you don't want to show up, not show up for them. So uh, I don't know. That was just like a scenario where I thought this might prevent me from babbing with a student or a colleague because I'm just in my head and there's something that's going on. And I guess there's that need for understanding at that, at that point, but also how do I, how do I separate that when I go to work? So um, and then when I thought about it, I thought about instances that I've had in the past and or I've seen in the past, not necessarily f- through myself, but through colleagues of mine. So for students, um, a barrier that could happen uh, that would prevent babbing is their parents. Sometimes parents can be a lot and they could um, situations can happen. 
uh, that could uh, make you be off put by a certain scenario or um, make you have to like really take a second and rethink about vibing or vabbing with the student. Um, and then behave. And I've seen it many times. Behaviors have stopped um, colleagues of mine from um, really vabbing with the students because they didn't. They could never look past the behavior and to see what's underneath um, of the reasoning behind it. And then uh, with colleagues, um, sometimes it can be beliefs or work ethic. If you're working really hard and your colleagues are not working as hard that could definitely hinder your vabbing concept. For me personally, I would say the biggest, the hardest part about it is uh, just if they're not vabbing back, I guess like you're trying to do your best to create the bond, but then they're just not having it. And you keep on trying and trying and trying. You'd never want to get, sometimes I can feel like I get, get discouraged from it. Um, that would be my only prevention though. And not that I wouldn't give up trying, but I'm not saying that. I was just saying that it's, um, there could be a roadblock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing I was, I was just thinking is, and we hope that this doesn't happen as well, but it's bias. True. You yeah. know, like mm -hmm. we talk about that so much and we, we know it's happening sometimes and we're just like, why can't I connect with this student? Um, and there's this undertone of something that you just feel about them, their personality, their culture, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. That's the undertone is like, Sometimes it's really hard to connect with someone if there's something else going on there. So you have to really look internally and say, like, why am I not connecting with this student or this person? Is it me instead of externally? Is it them? True. This one time I had a um, I was a, I was a teacher and I had a student and family in my classroom and they the student was doing fine. But they found out that I was gay and they went to my director's. And um, they said, I do not want my child to be in that classroom with a gay teacher. And so um, the, t the directors just said, hey, uh, we understand that you have your beliefs. That's fine. That's the only spot we have. So either you can basically take it or leave it. And they say they take it. And they were in the classroom for a long time. It took me really with some personal beliefs. Like I had to reshape the way I thought to be able to fully connect with that family. And after a while, they were really awesome. I enjoyed, they were good, great friends now. And we had a really awesome, awesome time with our child in my classroom. And it was just, it took a while. And that was definitely a, a prevention. It was like a parent's belief. And I had to just like basically swallow my pride for a second, try to seek to understood, understand. Yeah, that's really rough. I can't, I mean, I can understand that two people who have so opposite spectrum beliefs um, not, not connecting. But one thing about that is sometimes, sometimes when it's, it, oftentimes I should say, it's not the kid, but it affects the kid. So that, mm -hmm. that belief that that parent has against another person can affect how you feel about their child, which is un unfortunate. And, and you really do have to say like, okay, stop rethink this like you cannot blame a, another person for their parents decisions and beliefs and even even I could I remember myself feeling very awkward with handling their child because if I didn't want anything to be misconstrued or I don't know it just put it put a barrier it did at first and then I had to have a real a realization with my directors about my teaching ethic my why and I would not why was I 
so resistant when I'm just teaching. I just do what I do. And then it came down. I just, I, we had, we had to understand why I was feeling that way to be able to help the student. But then I also had to connect with families and understand why they were, why they were thinking the way they were thinking. And it's like, it really wasn't a huge deal after a while, but um, I just didn't, I don't know, the stereotypes that they brought up to the directors, um, it definitely put a barrier. It was just not, it was, it was an interesting experience. I wouldn't change it for the world, to be honest. It was, it was definitely life-changing for me, myself and uh, the family I had. Cause we all, we had to see, we had, we had to understand each other and, and um, it, it worked out. And that gave you the knowledge for that happening again, or something yeah. similar to that happening again, that made you stronger. And that probably made them stronger and opened their eyes to their bias for sure. Because the fact that they got over that and that you guys are friends now, that's, that's a big deal. Right. It totally reminded me of the last question when we were talking about kind of the root of bias and the root of so many issues, as Jamie mentioned, was like lack of knowledge or ignorance. Mm -hmm. Or even just the understanding. Yeah. So I wonder if part of it was beforehand, if they only had these stereotypes in their head and just labeled every gay man with those stereotypes versus if they got they to know did. somebody as a human like they were so awesome they apologize we actually they set me down and they apologized Aww. to me That's amazing and they said we didn't actually know you we just knew what was what we were hearing and you were the first like they they've never met another gay person which was surprised in vancouver of all places but and we changed the perspective of each other and it was really, it was really awesome. It was just a very awesome experience. I, I, they are awesome. <laughs> but there was a bunch of stereotypes that were being thrown around and it was, and that definitely did change the, the aspect of vibing. In this next section, Dr. Holly explains that the way to be a culturally responsive teacher is to really understand your deficit monitor. This is the internal signal that warns you when you are looking at students' behavior solely as negative, as lacking, or as liabilities, without coinciding that what you're looking at might be culturally and or linguistically based, and therefore, assets. The best way to keep yourself in check and vabbing with your students and colleagues is to follow a list of what are basically bias checks. First, check your filter. For example, where is the information coming from? How is it developed? And how are your experiences shaped? And how do you believe? Two, Question your belief system. And three, listen to your deficit monitor. The next pondering thought is, think of the last time you had a biased thought and how you responded. What cultural behaviors are you seeing in a negative way as it applies to your student? As far as a biased thought, I feel like I'll just, like I said, I'm going to go for the most recent one. So when it comes to my side job, uh, I work in the beauty industry. So I work with makeup, hair, clothing, and I feel like when I'm contacting a person, sometimes I find myself making a snap judgment that they're not going to be interested in the product because of their appearance. And I know that sounds really bad. That's okay. Wanting this, you know, but I don't know. They they might not be interested in this because they buy this brand or they're going to think mine's too expensive or, you know what I mean? And that's also like socioeconomic. Um, so I guess this might be a little bit of a self-preservation thing because also when you reach out to someone, you're going to get turned down and it gets a little tiring. But that's I think that's where I see myself making snap judgments most recently 
But the problem is, is you don't know what that someone likes until you ask them. So you can't make a snap judgment on a profile picture or an assumption on that. And then, yeah. yeah, And and in fact, a lot of my customers aren't people who would I, who I would have asked directly. They actually became my customers because of a mass post or a link. So I didn't even ask them. They just jumped on and I was like, oh, I would never have asked you. Maybe I should have. And then I guess the same thing goes for a student. You can't make those snap judgments because the way they're dressed, especially when it comes to kids, because they could be dressed in some crazy outfit. Um, mm-hmm. And we might oh their parents are neglectful or whatever when really it's just a child has a really strong personality um Mm -hmm. themselves and is like no I want to dress myself and I'm going to wear this so you know parents are going to have to pick their battles do I want my child to eat or do I want them to wear their favorite outfit because it's got holes and they spent the entire morning screaming it's just really about priorities you know what I mean Yes, very much. This, the, the items children come in with are hilarious. And the, some, of, <laughs> some of their likes are like, I'm going to wear that shirt, even though it's been the 10th day in a row, but I'm still going to wear it and mm-hmm. pick and choose those battles. Now, when I was thinking about this question, um, I the last thought I had was I was driving and I went around this car and I uh, looked into the driver's seat and it was a girl. And I was like, oh, of course, it's a girl driving. Um and then I had to check myself real fast about making that snap decision. But it was just like, that's a bias. And it should, it, it was just, I was impatient and I wanted to get around the car and I made a quick decision. And it was just, and then with children, it's kind of hard because I try really hard not to make biases. But then thinking about this question, I'm trying to think back if there has been any instances that I've created or been like, off-put by cultural behaviors in a negative way to the students and I can't think of any so um, I'm not saying that I haven't done it but now that I'm more aware about it it, I will have to I'll be able to think about it uh, in the future. So I was thinking about cultural behaviors and the book talks or I'm not sure if it's this book or what book it is because a lot of them talk about the same things but that black students and their culture have really the kids are energetic and they are allowed to release the energy and they're allowed to be loud and boisterous and that's part of the culture and it's not frowned upon and so then when they come into a classroom that is run by a let's let's just put it out there let's say they're run by a white teacher who Mm -hmm. wants their classroom to be quiet and all the kids to be sitting with their hands in their lap then that's gonna that's gonna negatively put them in a negative light by that teacher and they are automatically going to say oh that kid is bad oh that kid is not listening oh that kid is this and they're going to make those snap decisions without even getting to know or vibe with that student right and 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 the thing is that's not something that is culturally unacceptable whereas for us it is and if you think about um asia a lot of places over there silent i mean it is pin drop you can't hear anything yeah yeah um and i think another one that i've seen in that same realm of kind of just different cultures in the classroom would be um curly hair and like the tie the tie between that and like professionalism because i remember in band or stuff like that would be like you have to have your hair back and in a braid or your hair back and in a bun but if you have curly hair which you see more often in children of color that's not like 
impossible all the time based off of how or it's a lot more of a struggle to style that hair in this eurocentric hairstyle true Uh, so it's something small but something i've noticed before um and then as far as my most recent bias thing it was probably at work which was right before this podcast and our company as a whole has been having a strong focus on loss prevention recently because where I work there's a lot of theft because we have a lot of small things that are really easy to grab um and with that we're kind of told which like quote unquote type of people to look out for and it's mostly teenagers that's like our main thing is when a group of teenagers come in it equates to trouble and at first I was like okay I don't know if this counts as a bias because most of the time when we do catch people stealing, it is like a small pack of younger teenagers. But it was interesting that I caught myself kind of judging and biasing in in this myself because I'm only 18. I am technically a teenager and I'm over here judging the groups of teenagers that come into the store. So that was a little bit hard for me to get past. And I think there's, there is the stereotype of teenagers being trouble. And I think we see that kind of in the education field with how, like, a lot of us don't want to teach above, say, 13 or don't want to yeah. teach above 10. And I mean, part of that's because we all have our preferences. So it's not like if you don't want to teach older, that means you're biased. That's not what I'm saying. But there is that long stereotype of teenagers being rebellious, being trouble. I'll be out that up. I I have that stereotype. I, that's why I chose to teach kinder or kindergarten or would like to teach younger because of that like that mindset. Well, and it's not even that it's I mean, yes, it's a a bias, but also people are like, "Oh, they're troublemakers or they they don't think before they act but that's actually psychological as well I mean it's literally something that's happening in their brain right then and there that they're not as easily not able to control their impulses as someone at a different age or yeah. you know development mm-hmm. they don't have but, their executive function fully developed yet right but just because of that that they're just always going around stealing either. Yes, I would mean it like um, I was just like I've not wanted to teach middle school based on they are like high energy, they're a little more rambunctious, Mm -hmm. um, they question everything, they do what the opposite of what you say and stuff like that. That's what I was meaning by Mm -hmm. that. Oh no, I know. Yeah, a lot of times in middle school the stereotype or not even necessarily, I guess it's a stereotype but it's also what I'm seeing with my sister or family members of that age group too is there's this push all of a sudden from the age 10 to 11 when you go from elementary to uh, middle school of all of a sudden you're like a big kid you're supposed to be a grown-up and all of a sudden you can't be a kid anymore so like there's this push Uh to do all these adult things in middle school or to act like how they think they're supposed to act which a lot of times is breaking barriers um and I don't know how to address that as a teacher yet because I don't know how to address that as a sister but it's definitely something to think about. It's just the change in environment makes such a huge mental shift. And also th- like that thought of like, you are going to, you're in elementary school, you ha- you get to be in your core class and that core class goes to different things. And then you're going to middle school and you have homeroom. You have seven different classes that you have to attend today. 
Yeah. With different classes. I can't remember how many I had at the middle school, but <laughs> it was like that, just juggling that many different teachers and then expected to be a high, like you're expected kind of like to have high, that high school mentality kind of. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I think some of the middle school teachers, it seemed to me like they were harder academically than some of our high school teachers because they could use the phrase like, this is preparing you for high school. Yet you get to high school, and it's not that hard. Um, and I mean, high school teachers do the same thing. This is preparing you for college and you get to college and it's, it's challenging, but it's not the type of rigid power structure that's developed yeah. in middle school and high school. That's very true. I never thought about that way, Annabelle. I mean, as somebody who's like experienced it very, very recently, it's still on my mind because I remember how much it would irritate me. I was I started running start and I'm like, nobody's as mean to me as the high school teachers said they were going to be, you know? Oh or my gosh. As, or as tough, I want tough or like, um, sh- what, I say strict. Um, yeah. Yeah, strict. Like, like you must use APA for every single thing, even though most like formal papers do. But um, the way that it was described in high school isn't exactly the journey that we're experiencing right now, which is great because that was all academic based or like grading based versus actually reflection based and understanding retention. And one I saw a lot in high school was this idea that like college professors won't care about your excuses or won't care about what's going on outside of your life. But I feel like it's opposite. I've had complete opposite. Like. They're, they practice empathy, and I wonder if part of that's because now it's not a adult-to-child relationship. It's typically an adult-to-adult relationship, um, yeah. and maybe that's part of why our middle schoolers and high schoolers have that stereotype of acting out is because they're starting to feel more like adults without getting treated differently by teachers. I don't know. True. Well, I, have question. I have a question for you, Annabelle. So... Mm-hmm. Do you, are you in any, like, were you, or were you in any honors or ed, advanced classes in high school? Yes, um, I did pre-AP and honor classes freshman and sophomore year, but then I transferred to running start instead of doing AP. Um, okay. We have a whole debate on AP versus running start, but that's right. a different time. Well, oh. I, and I was wondering about that because I, when we were, so I was reading through um, the Wayne Al Aw, sorry, mm-hmm. book the rethinking multicultural education for mm-hmm. for Shamim's class coming up. And they talk about how honors classes and advanced classes have a ton of work. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're they requiring do. those like a tons of things. And I feel like it, a lot of it is not necessarily busy work, but you know, busy work, whereas yeah. they're not. And they talk about it being rigorous because there's a ton of work to do, but it's not necessarily intellectually rigorous. And I have a question. Like, did you feel like there was a difference between that in the AP classes versus when you switched over and you went into like or into the college classes or even if it was based on like teacher? Because I feel like a teacher can take all that rigorous work and turn it into intellectual work. I think there was a huge difference based off of who the teacher was, but in a general stance, something I've even experienced was um, because I moved to Washington, I had to take a class that was both a world history class and a Washington state history class because that's supposed to be taught to you your eighth grade year. But of course, I didn't learn Washington state history in California. So it was called World Themes, and I had to take that my sophomore year. Um, 
and that typically would be filled of either kids who had moved in or kids that hadn't passed it in eighth grade. So that was with what would typically be considered like the, uh, there was different tracks. That's like the track that's behind. Um, mm-hmm. And I was taking that class at the same time I was taking an honors English class. And interesting, it might have been different uh, just because of the individuals, but I feel like I've seen sometimes higher caliber teachers teaching what's supposed to be the quote unquote like lower classes. Um, and part of that, I think, is because you get more freedom because the higher up it goes in honors and the higher up it goes in AP, the more structured the curriculum is and the less independence the teacher has to really teach students in a holistic way. And so and to, from talking to friends I have that did do AP, a lot of it was dictated by the college board, a lot of what they did. And mm-hmm. it was so teaching to the test because you had to pay to take the AP test. You had to pay to be in AP classes sometimes. And so there was this whole economic part of it. There was this whole mindset of if I don't pass this one test at the end of the year, then my whole past year of grinding through worksheet after worksheet was for nothing um, because it just came down to that one test versus with me doing Running Start, it was much more focused on the class and kind of the meat of the course rather than passing a test. And that's what AP does. And I'm guessing that correlation goes from that change between elementary school and middle school is in elementary school, you are teaching multiple subjects within a class and you may have a little bit more wiggle room because you aren't so focused on one individual subject. Whereas when you get into middle school as a teacher, you're like, okay, you need to know all the ins and outs of this one subject you need. And that's a lot of pressure going into middle school because you do have those seven classes where every single teacher is like, okay, here's all the information fit all of this into your head and I'm sure that doesn't help with how they're how they're reacting to the teachers right for sure it's it's just taking more and more of the humanity out of teaching to an extent I would say and Um, I would say even in the younger years that it would um like they they have more academic freedom to choose mm -hmm. the lessons that they want to do um and then once you get into the higher grades they don't get that academic freedom go ahead Annabelle I I mean, I was just going to say pretty much the same thing, Thomas, but I've even heard of some teachers who have the tenure and have the ability and have tested and whatever you need to do to be able to teach AP. And they decide to step down from teaching AP courses because they're tired of pretty much being told what to do. Um, Intentionally teach what's called like considered lower classes because they get to really connect with their students. And I think at the end of the day, that's what a lot of us seek to do anyways. So I don't know. I think it's, it's really unfortunate how it's putting these kids that are supposed to be more advanced into really this just more and more narrow of a box with higher standards. Yeah. And how do we change that? And how do we be the teacher that is stuck in that, but is still able to make it so like, how do we become so creative that we're able to make it so that even with all those high standards, we're still able to make it enjoyable and interesting because that that is going to be a challenge because I plan to go into middle school. So how do I do that? I think, th- like, sorry, thinking of like the SAMR that we're doing right now, um, I think that's a great navigation to, for um, still teaching those standards, but in different ways, exciting ways. And you can create right. a journey through that that could be very amazing. And um, but still teaching those core standards, of course. A hundred percent. And I think something that you can do a little bit easier at the middle school level than you can at the high school level 
and this might be a misconception of mine because there was such a population difference between my middle school experience and my high school experience but I feel like at the middle school level you can communicate more with different teachers at in your grade band that, that are teaching different subjects because I had a few teachers work together so we were learning similar themes in each class so it could have this larger just larger experience and it was more wholesome compared to just something different and separate in every class even though it was teaching different um different content it was still tied together like I think one two weeks where it was all Egypt based and everything we were doing oh yeah I remember that that was awesome (laughs) I love I love I love the Egypt's concept oh my gosh (laughs) I created a um, a tomb at a cardboard and stuff. It was really cool. I forgot about that. Thank you for bringing that back to my mind, Annabelle. Of course. I mean, and if you remember that and it was fun for you, you can bring that kind of stuff over to your classroom in the future. Exactly. Dr. Holly continues on to touch on the research regarding the subject of deficit monitor. The overall consensus is that the better you know who you are radically, ethically, and nationally, the more likely you are to validate and affirm others. There are at least seven separate identities, race, gender, nationality, religion, ethnicity, class, and age that you must know in order to better understand who you are. These identities make what are called your rings of culture, each ring reflecting a part of your identity. Now for the pondering thought. Who are you? Identify the rings of culture for yourself. For each ring, provide a behavior or attribute that you do solely linked to that identity. Two hints. Ethnic identity is your home culture, heritage, and race is not a culture, so it is not a ring. Consider how you might learn about your students using rings. I, who am I? I am Thomas, and I am going to identify my rings. In the age ring, I am a millennial. Uh, my orientation is homosexual. I am a cisgendered man. Um, my ethnic is white, national, or where I'm at, the United States. Um, my religion is agnostic. I don't really believe in anything. And then my socioeconomic status is the lower class. Um and then let me see. I didn't really, I didn't actually do an attribute. I identify that differently. I'm reading it now for a different reason. I chose that the one that I most identify most to is um, that I'm homosexual. I tend to, I find that as my most, the best attribute in my life, per se. I really, I enjoy that community and um, it's really helped bring a whole centeredness around my life. Like I would, if you had to do the rings, because all the like equal circles around, I would have that one be massive and enlarged because it's just so, it's so prevalent to my existence. Well, to hop in after that one, Thomas, <laughs> something that stuck out to me when making these rings to begin with was how many of these are fluid and might change in your life, like the religion or socioeconomic status. So true. Obviously age too. I feel like right? all of them obviously are up in the air. So I'm 18, so I adult teenager teenage adult who knows nationality i don't even remember if that one was actually in the book but i have it down united states uh american fluctuating lower middle class because i'm still associating it with the household i'm in which is my parents and that's 
changed a lot. So I feel like where we are now isn't what influenced me the most, if that makes sense. And it does. Religious, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself religious, but I would consider myself spiritual. I don't necessarily define it as anything other than I have this hope or feeling that there's someone or something out there. And in growing up of this idea of freedom and individuality being very important. And I think both of those tie to the whole roots of the United States from like the Revolutionary War forward. Um, socioeconomic status, like I said, fluctuating lower middle class because we're working our way towards middle class currently but like I said that's not really how I was raised so I think that just has made me value a lot more of what I do have and also I think it created this emphasis on the difference of wants versus needs which I know us three have discussed before and something core in our childhood was what's a want and what's a need and why is that important but yeah I think that just to wrap up um yeah this is a loaded question these are loaded questions for me so my age, I'm technically millennial. There are a lot of stereotypes that come with millennial and I don't feel like I fit them. I feel like because I'm 1981 is the beginning of the millennials and I'm in 1983. And so there are negative stereotypes of millennials. So I feel like I'm like, no, I'm a Gen X. I want to fight this millennial thing. Then orienta- orientation, heterosexual, straight. I don't know why, but, but those words just sounds so harsh to me but I mean that's what I am then gender cis woman I really all I really wanted to say was female in there but the book wrote cis male so I wrote cis woman ethnicity so ethnic this gave me a lot of discomfort too because technically I'm white and that feels really strange to say as a Filipino as far as race but my culture is white because I grew up in a white household. But again, that gave me a little discomfort because I I seem to bring up SATs a lot. Um, But in those little drop-down boxes, I always write ethnicity, Filipino, and race, Filipino, things like that. So writing white, when I wrote that down, felt really strange. National Filipina, religious, I wrote not socioeconomic I wrote middle class question mark um, because I don't really know where that line is between middle class lower middle class and upper middle class so I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm somewhere in the middle I do own a house Um, strictly as myself so yeah and then I mean as far as things that I do solely linked to that identity or behaviors or attributes I mean orientation I have an attraction to people who I look at as male you know and I identify with the gender that I was assigned on my birth certificate for gender. Ethnicity, again, that's my, my discomfort. But the religious part is also interesting because I do celebrate holidays, but I don't celebrate them religiously. I celebrate them as like family time to get together because I'm in the United States and these are the things that happen in the United States. So let's have, let's follow this tradition of sorts but not have it have any relation to religion those are just a few from the cultural rings that we just talked about we move on to understanding yourself to understanding your students and their families
In the text on page 41, there's this beautiful picture of an iceberg layered with the concept of culture. And in this section, it talks about the sophist culture above the water. And these are represented by being things that are seen, such as food, attire, music, and so forth. Then you go below the surface. These are the unspoken rules, like bowing, facial expressions, nonverbal communication. Then, lastly, you go to the deep culture at the very bottom of the iceberg. And that is represented as elements of the unconscious rules that are the concept of self, the concept of the past and the future, and attitudes towards their dependents, and so on. Unfortunately, we often tend to stay on the surface culture. We must break through the surface and swim through the shallow and deep parts of the deep culture. Only then can we truly understand our students and their families. A huge part of the culture is the language and linguistics and our students must have access to their own native home language. Most home languages are typically acceptable in our educational system, but then there, there are those that are not. And it's typically coming from families of colors languages. To name a few is, um, is the African American Vernacular English, and then we have the Chicano English, and we have Hawaiian Pidgin English. Now thinking about this thought, including the unaccepted languages that was just mentioned. What are the various home languages in your class and your school? I'm not currently working in a school, but when I was, the home languages in my classroom um, were Spanish from Mexico, Mandarin, Japanese, and Chinese. Um, for me, I had Spanish as well. I had American Sign Language. I've had Cantonese and Japanese were the, the languages that were in my class. And I haven't taught in a school before, so I'm going to preface this with um, using what I remember from high school because that's the most recent really school I've been in where I remember numerous languages being spoken. And ones that I remember that were different languages that I inter like interacted with was Ukrainian, Russian, Spanish, and ASL. As well, I had a few friends who were children of book defined as unaccepted dialects or languages. I think the most common one I saw, especially for some reason I remember in my English class, was AABE. But I think the reason I remember it the most was because our English teacher had a really weird tone about it and would always grammatically correct students who use certain language that was common in african-american vernacular english claiming that it wasn't proper english which was a whole thing in itself but it was and it was when we were speaking too it wasn't just in writing and trying to critique how they wrote it was trying to critique how they spoke and i thought that was so weird because if it's communication verbally then why does it matter what's considered proper english especially as we had a kid in there from louisiana with just a straight up southern drawl and using oh my goodness i'm like okay so you're gonna correct the kids using aave but not the other one i don't know right yeah and what happens when you're an esl student where exactly that just doesn't seem right to me 
Yeah, definitely didn't sit with me right at the time. And that was before I had any education on education. And see, I didn't actually come with any of like the when the unaccepted languages. I've never heard them before. This is oh. the first time I've actually had an interaction with them, which is really. And I wonder if I actually knew what it sounded like, if I actually did interact with others, like in my past, heard it and just like played it off or like whatever. Um, you probably have. Not to assume. Oh, yeah. But, but I I now, it, it's made me very interested to actually look it up. Right. Because African-American vernacular English, I wouldn't have recognized it as something different until I moved into the Vancouver area and it was more prevalent. Because where I lived before, it wasn't really prevalent. Or if it was, the type of wording was used almost to mock, like, inner city lingo and kind of this weird, like, I remember it being referred to as gangster talk, you know? And oh, so- so messed up but like that was what I remember hearing it as before in a very secluded covered space where it was very isolated but mm-hmm. coming up here is, it's just another form of communication it's not as long as they're speaking that's the thing I just don't get it <laughs> right well I mean that makes me think of like ebonics so it's just a blend of those those sounds I guess um, but that makes me think of it the african-american I'm wondering if that's the same thing or different uh, because I know Ebonics from I learned that term from and I don't know if that's an okay term to use but if it's the same thing as AAVE like or, or similar right and I think one of the best and it's not a best example it's just the example that's popping off like the top of my head to be honest but one of them that I remember was the double use of past tense was considered part of AAVE so done did instead of I did this. Mm, um, okay. That would be considered inside the context of much more spoken sentences, of course. Something like done did would be considered AABE. Yeah, and I think that's pretty similar to Ebonics, if not. I'm not sure what all of them are, but I definitely want to look that up because I'm I'm interested to see what differences or just like those minute things are between right. the two. Right. And I remember that one just because I remember, like I said, the English teacher who pitched a fit about it. Things we should start looking up. Right. I, I'm curious about I'm curious about that. This section is about how some students benefit more than others from being culturally responsive. There are still those who are left behind. Students are vastly underserved due to their linguistic differences. This causes children to feel like they are failing and ultimately can cause them to drop out or, as Dr. Holly explains, pushed out. There are languages in America that are accepted and not accepted. To list a few, African American Vernacular English, Chicano English, and Hawaiian Pidgin English, Dr. Holly points out that we do accept different forms of English, but it tends to show that we do not accept forms of English that have been cultivated by people of color. They bring us a sense of awareness that there are differences, but we need to destroy those barriers, even within our linguistic system, as culturally responsive teachers, then support our most vulnerable youth. The last pondering thought for today asks, who are your underserved students? What data do you have to support your claim? What approaches, interventions, programs, or curricula are you using that may not be adequately meeting their needs? Thinking about who are uh, most underserved, uh, underserved children are, I think, people of color. 
uh, and our low socioeconomic status students. What data do I have to support the claim? If you look up at any statistic, you will see that they're the most underserved. They're typically the ones with the lower scores, the less access, and the less um, money that is spent per child in their capital. What can I do is I'm hoping that I will um, be able to work in a school that at least I can provide quality instruction to them. Um, that is like a tier, uh, a title one school. And then bringing different programs to that school that can help really boost what they need. If that means like when, it, when I, we heard a podcast that was truly amazing about integration and I wonder if I could possibly help maybe a district that has students that want to come back and forth somehow. That was my thought process along that because I'm not in a school. So again, I, I, because I'm not in a classroom anymore, preschools I worked at, I'd say the underserved students were maybe the ones who were paying for their daycare using state assistance. Strangely enough, this might have been an exception, though, but most of those students actually happened to be white and only a couple were black and a few were Hispanic. But I was I was sort of surprised it must have been the area that I was in um, were white. But data that I had to sur- support that claim, I think that due to the relationships that I had with the parents, it wasn't like I was asking oh, are you on state assistance or the the daycare wasn't telling me that information. But talking about underserved, sometimes I feel like it's just maybe not the, the ones who are getting state assistance because they're getting a state assistance, but because that one step up from that, they make too much money to get government help. Exactly. I know a lot of uh, families that were in that right above the cusp, like my Personally, my brother's right above the cusp where he doesn't make enough to survive, but he doesn't make enough to get government assistance because that that bar is so low. Insane. It is. Especially with today's market and living, just renting somewhere in any populated area is expensive. Definitely. And I think living where we do, too, it's a more expensive area. I know I have a coworker who straight up moved back to Texas. Because the cost of living was rising quicker than income was around here. Um, and, and she had a community back in Texas she could go to. But it's definitely something interesting and something new each day. Um, mm-hmm. And I think my answers are pretty similar to you guys, to People from lower economic status and also children of color. Which in some of my personal experiences, that tended to overlap. But that's primarily also because of where I live, for one, I think there was a higher amount of us that would be considered lower socioeconomic status because that's how the whole county was. I might be wrong and this statistic might be dated now, but at the time we were the poorest county in California per capita. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's because it was kind of a washed up agriculture county. So there wasn't anything there. I mean, the railroad tracks didn't even run through. That was a joke we had. But with that, I think... We also, with it still being agricultural, I saw a lot more Hispanic students in my classes with me, uh, and I could see them being underserved too. I also remember when the AVID program got introduced, all of a sudden, like, all of the teachers were targeting this AVID program as something specifically for Latino or Latina students. And I thought that was really interesting because in retrospect, a lot of us who were white would have benefited from the program just as much. But it was pushed as this idea of, oh, you, you want to be good in school, 
but you're only a C average student who could be a B average student with art. So they specific and then they specifically targeted children of color, which was just I don't I don't know if that was an unconscious bias or an intentional step. And I also just remember socioeconomic being the the most obvious growing up because it was no I can't afford this or no um even as far as sports, no, half the team can't do club ball in the off season because you have to pay mm-hmm. for that. True. Yeah, and that goes towards those interventions programs that mm-hmm. aren't adequately meeting their needs because mm-hmm. you know you're you're offering all of these things better them and after school programs and all these things, but they cost money. Only the people who can afford it can go, and things like. I don't know, special things where curricula comes into things like field trips Mm -hmm. where you do have to pay to go that extra place. I have seen that before and it's like, well, only the people who can afford it get to go and go to a STEM location or go to an art location because they have money. But I don't know. I feel like I feel like that's that's lessening, hopefully, at least. I still Mm -hmm. I I still I know in my in my high school they um they had a a program which helped lower income families but now that i'm thinking about it i also lived in a middle class area a middle class area if i I was let's say in a lower class area and actually it's still poor as my family was we that program probably wouldn't have been there because the the teacher or the parent-led programs wouldn't have the funds to be able to support my need my need to go does that make sense Oh, for sure. I could see that. When we started this episode, we answered questions from the anticipation guide. We will now answer those questions again and reflect on any of our original responses that changed after we completed the chapter. So the first question was the culturally responsive teaching is meant to help with race relations among educators and students. And I am now a hard disagree on that. So that one changed for me. Same here. It went from agree, kind of, like I thought that was one of the layers, to now, no, that's not that's not the intention or purpose in culturally responsive teaching. That might be a happy accident, but I, I don't think that's the reason. And I would also agree with both of your statements. I went from agreeing with it. Um, still uncomfortable, but then I hard pass. Hard pass. Hard pass. Okay, the second one was all students can achieve highly when given the opportunity to learn. And I, I still agree that if they're given the opportunity, meaning access and all of those things, then yes, I still agree. And I yeah. am agree well. Yes, I did agree as well. And I um, agreed with it as well. Um, I it, I still, as long as opportunity still includes, as you were saying, Jamie, access, um, abilities, and so forth. The next one was racial identity and culturally, oh, and cultural identity are synonymous. I do not, I still don't agree with that. Yeah, that's a nope. I had a maybe, and now I'm a hard no. Just understanding what those actually meant, got the definition. Um, I was able to be defined as different differently. And so I am definitely on the no side now. So then non-standard English is a simplified version of standard English. Yeah, I disagree. And it was 
it went from a maybe but disagree to a hard no. I put a question mark on the first one because I didn't understand what those actually meant. And with what my gut was telling me, I was right. It's no, because they're a non-standard English isn't a simplified version of standard English. They're different languages all, all together or a they're, they are their own dialect, correct. And then we have socioeconomic status is the most critical factor in student success. I disagreed before. I, I feel like I'm in between now. I still that most critical factor. I know that there are people who came from socioeconomic status, including many of us where we didn't have the things that we have. And then we were able to move up and we were able to have success in school when we were in school. But I also know other people who didn't. I'm sort of a more towards agree. There's that tiny percentage that I'm still not 100% on. Right. And I, the most still gets to me. I think something we realized or reaffirmed in this chapter was the idea of intersectionality and that intersectionality is going to create different scenarios for each kid. And so I think Mm -hmm. socioeconomic status is a huge factor, but I don't know if I would consider it the most critical factor, although I did have to bias check myself because growing up, I remember that one being the most, but that was also because I was in a predominantly white elementary school. So that was going to be the most obvious one to see. So um, I went from a hard yes to a hard no. I had to check my biases when coming with this to this decision. Um, I placed it through the only the solely of the lens that I represented it um, when I was growing up. And I knew if I had more money, I would be better off. But then thinking about it, there are other aspects to our culture than just social, social economic status. And for others, it may not be the most crucial factor um, for me, it was, but I don't think that we can we can lump them all in a whole because for others, there are other barriers that could be the most crucial to them. Yeah, I think that this I think that this part, at least the two questions that I kind of went back and forth on, were mainly the first and last, and those are the two that I felt like. I understand better after reading it. The other ones yeah. I was like, oh yeah, no, this they seemed a little bit more straightforward to me to either agree or disagree. But these last two, I was like, oh, super uncomfortable. And I feel like I have a better grasp on that. Although we don't have the same answers, but I think this last question is very um, objective in the way that we read the question. Maybe not necessarily objective in like what it what the author meant but what we're reading into it as our interpretation of course yes i would uh i would definitely think that concurred to the statement the author mentions the practice of courageously conversing about race when necessary as future teachers leaning into our discomfort and reaching within ourselves in order to answer questions like these will help us teach with purpose It enables us to become more mindful and responsive to our students and teaches us how to respectfully navigate and adapt to the cultures represented within the classroom and school without losing ourselves in the process. Though many of these questions are geared toward people in the field of education, we urge you to think about them in ways that connect you personally. Ask yourself these questions in settings such as your work environment, if you're a student, your classroom, or even just your everyday life. Jot them down and let us know what you come up with. Remember, 
As the book says, your first thoughts will not be your last thoughts. The key to being willing to recognize what you are thinking with prejudice is to know who you are culturally and linguistically, which is the next step in the changing of your mindset. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.